Hello, it's great to be with you again. This is MLEX's podcast, ready to recap another crazy busy week in regulatory affairs with help from our team of reporters around the globe. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And where to start this week? Well, you don't have to be an MLEX subscriber to know that Illumina's $8 billion US dollar takeover of cancer testing company Grail has gone through an interesting process of late. It's not so much the European Commission's review of the deal, although that is still unfolding and it may yet have some drama in store for us. What's more important is an EU court's ruling on whether the European Commission indeed even has the right to vet the acquisition. Natalie McNeilis will walk us through the ins and outs of that decision in just over 10 minutes from now, and there is so much to discuss. First up, though, to the US. And yes, it's time to throw some chicken into the regulatory frying pan because five chicken industry executives have been acquitted in a criminal price-fixing trial this month. It wasn't the first time they'd faced prosecution, courtesy of the Department of Justice, and it wasn't the first time that they had prevailed. So what does the DOJ's defeat say about Assistant Attorney General Jonathan Cantor's campaign to get tough on antitrust violations? Our coverage of this case came to you courtesy of Mike Acton in San Francisco and Kushita Vasant in Washington, D.C., and they are with us now, both in spirit and in person. Now, Mike, let me start with you, given that you covered the early stages of this. Uh, What do we need to know about the DOJ investigation and what uh, had those executives actually been accused of? So they were accused of being involved in an industry-wide conspiracy over a number of years from around 2012 uh, to around 2018 to fix the prices of uh, chicken. So particularly you think of sort of KFC or Popeyes or uh, Chick-fil-A, all these big chicken, uh, fried chicken chains um, were the sort of main alleged victims of this conspiracy. When the chicken suppliers go to these companies, uh, they typically submit bids and it's supposed to be a competitive process. Uh, But of course, in this case, they're accused of calling each other up on the phone, exchanging emails, exchanging messages, the sort of age-old story, um, the classic price-fixing case. Now, there were two initial trials late last year and earlier this year. What happened with those? Well, so to begin with, there are actually 10 defendants in this case, uh, and they've been whittled down over uh, over the course of these three trials. Uh, the first trial was last year. Um, the charges landed back in 2020. There are other charges pending, so this is not the full extent of the entire case. Uh, but for these uh, executives, they went to trial. It went on for multiple months. And in December, the first trial ended in a mistrial, which means the jury just basically couldn't reach a unanimous verdict. In a criminal case, you obviously need to have a unanimous guilty verdict. The DOJ came back again, and they basically put up more or less exactly the same case uh, and had exactly the same uh, result in March. Uh, so quite unusual to see the government fail in a criminal case twice and then raise the question of, well, what's the point of going again? Well, tell us something about the arguments that the defence used against the DOJ. They must have been compelling arguments if they uh, if they won so decisively. So, yeah, I mean, the first two trials, you have 10 defendants and 10 separate teams of lawyers. Uh, so the, the courtroom ends up being quite full uh, and all of them get all of these lawyers get their chance to make statements and, um, and make their arguments. But all of them were broadly aligned um, with the narrative that what the DOJ had essentially done is that it had put 
tried to match facts to a theory that it had basically decided there was a conspiracy in the industry without really understanding how the industry works. Uh, and they argued that it's perfectly natural for these sorts of phone calls and communications to go on between competitors because if this wasn't done, then you would end up with you know, day-to-day shortages. Uh, one of the uh, events that factored quite prominently in the trial was uh, when KFC ran out of chicken a few years ago, which caused a massive surge in what allegedly caused a massive surge in prices because, it, you know, it's almost unheard of. It was a national emergency, surely. Mother, it was on Mother's Day, no less. So apparently KFC's best day for business is uh, Mother's Day. I, I didn't know that. And then the classic uh, uh, defense team um, sort of approach of attacking the witnesses. There were two sort of key witnesses in the case. One of them went all the way to the third trial. The other one they actually dropped along the way for some reason. But uh, this key witness of Pilgrim's Pride, which is one of the, the main companies allegedly involved in this conspiracy, a uh, fellow called uh, Robbie Bryant, was the sort of star witness. And so they went to great lengths to sort of detract from him and, and, and cast doubt on, on his reliability as a witness, primarily because he'd reached some sort of plea deal with the DOJ where they weren't prosecuting him in exchange for him testifying. Uh, and just to add to what Mike said, um, one of the arguments the defense brought up was um, a gas station analogy. So here in the U.S., you have... Uh, Uh, competing gas stations right across the road from each other. Um, So one of the defense lawyers actually, uh, you know, compared this alleged conspiracy to um, how gas stations uh, fix prices. And sometimes people actually would go to the other gas station if the gas is 10 cents cheaper. The DOJ didn't exactly buy that argument, but that was one of the things that the defense put out there. Uh, Kushita, what did Cantor have to do after the second trial failed, in your view? What was his justification for a third trial? Actually, um, this is this goes back to the day there was a mistrial declared um, in the second trial, and and both Mike and I were, you know, calling up our lawyers, and perhaps just to give you a bit of color of. What, what was going on on that day. We were frantically like trying to get in uh, touch with our sources, with, with lawyers on both sides, with the DOJ. And um, we heard that the judge was told by the government that they wanted to bring this trial. They wanted to try these 10 defendants for a third time. And the judge said, well, I want Jonathan Cantor, who is the assistant um, attorney general uh, at the antitrust division of the DOJ, to come look me in the eye. Those are the exact words of this judge. Uh, I want him to come look me in the eye and explain why he wants to try these defendants a third time. Um, And uh, so this hearing happened a few weeks later, but between the end of the second trial and um, when Cantor was due to appear, the the DOJ dropped five defendants because they wanted to streamline the case. Uh, Now, I actually ended up being in court for um, Cantor's appearance. It was It was a hearing less than two hours long, and the judge grilled him a lot. The the judge said, I think if I had, I I probably should have counted the number of times the judge used the word, the jury was hung and polarized, but I was uh, frantically taking notes, so I I didn't (laughs) count. But um, the judge really was, you know, trying to drive home the point that you have, uh, you know, you're taking up the court's time, you're also using up resources, Um, of your own, both manpower and money, and why do you want to try these defendants a third time when two juries have been 
unconvinced by your case and they have you know th- those two trials ended up being declared as mistrials yes yeah, so, well that's that's a good question uh, kushita what was the answer i mean it it is an intriguing decision by the doj isn't it uh cantor did his best to convince the judge he said you know we have fresh faces at the table who are going to bring fresh perspectives and and uh, actually he the whole trial team um scattered to the wind except for one lawyer uh, and they did actually bring in an entirely new team now the third and final trial ended in acquittal not a mistrial so uh, kushita what could this third failure mean for the future of uh, doj enforcement um we've been speaking to some lawyers who say this doesn't bode well for the doj's leniency program because and um mike has covered this extensively and maybe mike can talk about it but uh, the doj came up with an updated set of guidelines on what companies or uh, potential whistleblowers to, would should do um when they are seeking leniency or when they find out that you know this is a problematic um conduct in their company so lawyers think that companies or individuals are going to be less forthcoming in um coming to the DOJ and blowing the whistle and basically just you know outing themselves because there's a risk that they out themselves and they end up getting prosecuted it's it's not necessarily the DOJ that um, the DOJ has egg on its face right um they've gone through multi week trials three times over which is must have cost millions um of, ta- of what is essentially taxpayer money they've dragged this uh star witness uh Robbie Bryant into three separate trials and he's had to testify on the stand and be torn apart by defense lawyers three separate occasions and the outcome of that is zero convictions that's embarrassing um i think for the doj it maybe plays into this idea under under cantor's leadership that they're going to be more muscular in their enforcement and they're not going to give up right so even if you're a company looking at that and thinking well you there's a good chance you'll get away with a price fixing case because the bar is so high and you know even if you have some incriminating emails as they did pop up in this in this context of this case um at least the way that the the evidence was presented by um the DOJ they looked kind of incriminating um well even if you do you get off but you still have to sit through three separate trials and your family has to go through that and come into the courtroom three separate occasions over the course of a year and and you have to pay your lawyers too i mean it must be an incredible expense right so it's not it's not something anyone would want to go through even if at the end of it you are as these men were acquitted but from from of course from the company side i mean it, it doesn't doesn't look great i mean the, the the doj has to be able to win these cases it can't just bring these cases at vast expense Richard Powers who is the deputy assistant attorney general at the DOJ's antitrust division he's basically the guy who runs you know all the criminal uh investigations uh he actually has said you know we are going to have mixed outcomes at trial uh so he he's already told his team our aggressive antitrust enforcement is not going to secure convictions in every case because if we did that we wouldn't be enforcing the antitrust laws forcefully uh so the doj is is pretty much not going to give up and uh jonathan canter has um he's gone on co- a couple of public forums and he's like you know i tell my staff to put up put on the song by tom petty i think the song is i'm not going to back down um it's a pretty famous 80s song um so they are not going to let up despite a series of losses And Kushita, what's next for the DOJ in its chicken case? Where does this go now? I assume that a fourth trial is out of the question, right? 
Yes. So um, there are actually, so we had these 10 defendants uh, in this case, but that's not the end of it. There were four other individual defendants and all of these are former executives at this one chicken company called Pilgrim's Pride. And um, these four were indicted later. So their trial is going to commence in October. It was actually going to commence two days ago, but there have, you know, court deadlines and stuff. Uh, so um, that's going to be another trial, I assume much shorter than the previous trials in the other chicken cases. And then uh, two companies, Claxton, uh, Claxton Foods and Coke Foods, uh, they have their trial coming up sometime in April. It will, of course, look kind of odd if the further Pilgrim's Pride defendants are found guilty after their former, two former CEOs and, vi- and, and vice presidents and, and, and other executives were found uh, not guilty. So um, it creates an interesting dynamic. It does indeed. Uh, Kushita, Mike, if there's anyone who won't back down, it's the both of you with your tireless and fearless reporting. Thank you for working on it so diligently over the past months and years. Thank you again. Thanks. Thank you, James. Kushita Vasant is an MLEX senior correspondent covering U.S. antitrust enforcement and litigation, and senior correspondent Mike Acton covers antitrust and big tech from MLEX's offices in San Francisco. Kushita's analysis of the DOJ's defeat in this prosecution is online and ready for you to read. To do that, you'll need to be at our website, which is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. This is, of course, MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki. Thank you for staying with us today. In just a few moments, we'll talk about a legal victory for the European Commission and how it's likely to have a very big impact on the regulator's right to stick its nose into significant acquisitions. And of course, you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. Now, let me set the scene for you. Illumina is a US-based biotech company, and so is Grail, although the latter doesn't have any revenues in the European Union. Now, Illumina is set to acquire Grail for $8 billion US. So the European Commission sets about doing what it usually does, reviewing the deal to determine whether it should be allowed to proceed. That much is clear. But does the Commission actually have a right to get involved? Well, apparently it does. That, at least, is the view of the EU General Court. The recent decision is significant, not just for this deal, but also for what it could suggest for future M&A reviews. Our Brussels mergers reporter, Natalie McNeilis, has been all over the story, covering every twist and turn. And on Wednesday of this week, she spoke to MLEX's Laurel Henning. Natalie, last week the European courts in Luxembourg issued a highly anticipated judgment. Can you tell me about it and why it's important? Yes, indeed. Highly anticipated. I mean, I have to say that in my time at MLEX, I think this was the most uh, exciting judgment that I've covered uh, so far. And I had about six different versions written, uh, you know, Illumina wins, Illumina loses, Illumina wins halfway, Illumina loses halfway. Wow. You know, it was really so overprepared from my side and I was refreshing my screen like every second because everybody in Brussels was waiting for this judgment, you know, on with bated breath. And um, I thought to myself, you know, 
halfway through, I said, my God, you know, I think if you're this excited about a judgment from the general court in Luxembourg, I think maybe you need to get out a little bit more. (laughs) That reminds me of my driving instructor when I was younger. He always said, uh, preparation prevents hesitation. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So yes, I was, I was hyper prepared. And, uh, and uh, we did get the story out within a second. So, you know, I, I, it was a, a win from the reporting side. Um, but I have to say that uh, it was very much a, a Brussels bubble story and one in which uh, every lawyer in town was waiting to see how it would come out. But in its substance, what the case is about, it's a fight between the European authorities and an American company called Illumina. Illumina is this very big biotech company that has developed a, a gene sequencing uh, technology and equipment. I mean, it's really at the top of its game. And there's nobody as good as Illumina in gene sequencing. And Grail, the company that Illumina decided to buy, used Illumina's gene sequencing technology to develop something very um, revolutionary. And it's a blood test which can detect 50 different types of cancer and even tell you what's the tissue of origin. And this is obviously a game changer when you think about dealing with cancer. Catching it early, we know, is the most important thing. And so a blood test that can do that, you know, is, is probably going to be part of our um, of our annual physicals, you know, in years to come. I mean, myself, I can't wait to get my hands on this test. So that is the, the backstory. Um, Illumina decided to uh, buy Grail and it's its premise is we are a very big company and we can roll this test out far and wide. We'll make sure that this test that, that Grail has developed, which is called Galeri, we'll make sure that it's available in uh, in the United States, in Europe, all over the world. With the aim of, I guess, spreading this small company with lots of potential far and wide, that's sort of the goal here. I mean, that all, that all sounds fine so far, but what's the controversy? I th- the thing is, and that's why it's it's amazing that we're so excited about a, a case which is about a merger control, but yeah, there it is. Um, the controversy all has to do with when can a government intervene in a company's decision to buy another company? Like, at what level can the government uh, get involved and say, this is, uh, this is okay or this is not okay? That's what, you know, merger control. And in general, there are some guardrails, there are some bright lines, there's rules that say when the the country has jurisdiction to review the merger and when it doesn't. And generally, it, it has to do with whether or not the deal is big enough, or whether or not it's a, it causes really a problem for competition. And this is a deal where, okay, Illumina is plenty big enough. It's a, it's a billion dollar company. But Grail is this tiny startup, and it doesn't have any business in Europe at all. It doesn't have any presence in Europe at all. And so Illumina, when it was deciding where do we need, you know, which authorities need to give us permission to do this deal, it didn't put Europe on its list because it said there's no business in Europe. We don't, you know, no worries. They, they notified where they needed to notify, but not in Europe. That is where this whole controversy uh, came about was you know, if, who has the right to intervene and look at this deal? Okay. And then I guess we're starting to get into the weeds of European regulation and why um, this case then became so problematic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? For regulators around the world, it is a bit of an uncomfortable situation to see a merger which they think is potentially problematic 
and not be able to review it. And that happens when the, the deal doesn't actually meet those thresholds, those jurisdictional thresholds. And they're concerned about it because they say, well, you know, when a big company swallows up a little one, it can be what we call a, a killer acquisition. Basically, you know, the big company buys the little one and then kills it. Or it can be something that, um, that has a negative impact on competition. If you think about some past examples, for example, Facebook, they had their own uh, messaging service, fa- Facebook Messenger, but then they, they bought WhatsApp. And they also bought Instagram. And those were two acquisitions, which, you know, they did get reviewed in the end, but it was kind of on the edge. You know, it was barely, barely meeting the threshold. And the regulators are getting increasingly uncomfortable with these killer acquisitions because in this, in the digital economy, this is happening more and more that you have a company that has basically zero turnover. Maybe they, they don't actually charge for their services, you know, like WhatsApp. And yet still the regulators would like to take a look at it and would like to sign off on it, you know, one way or the other. So what what changed? I imagine somebody basically having a sort of a bathtub eureka moment. You know, he's like lying in his in his bath and thinking to, to himself or herself, well, wait a minute. There is this provision in the merger regulation. We never used it this way, but maybe we could use it this way. It's Article 22. And Article 22 was a provision that was put in the merger regulation, I mean, you know, decades ago. And it was meant to do something different. It was called the Dutch Clause. And basically, it was meant to cover the situation where a country doesn't have, didn't have a merger control regime at all. And yet, a merger happened in their jurisdiction that they thought somebody ought to take a look at. And they had the possibility with this Article 22 to send it to the European Commission. And they called it the Dutch Clause because at that point, the Netherlands didn't have a merger control regime of their own. And they wanted to have a way to send those deals that they wanted to be looked at to Lux- to, to Brussels. And I remember that there was one uh, Endemol, a Dutch company, made an acquisition and they sent it to the European Commission for review. So... Everybody knows that that was the origin of this provision. I imagine this, uh, you know, some lawyer around town, uh, one of the European Commission legal service, probably, you know, having a brainwave one day and saying, wait a minute, I think it was all there. Um, it might have also been somebody in the French Competition Authority who said, hang on a second, I think we've got it. It's Article 22. We can use that. We can repurpose it to get these killer acquisitions. Okay, so we've got lots of people having baths. We've got EU regulators going Dutch, but in a different way. Repurposing, I guess, existing EU merger regulation. Is that legal? I mean, exactly. That's exactly what Illumina said. They said, hold on, you know, slow your roll here. We all know, you know, and we know that that's not what Article 22 is for. Like you are taking a provision of the merger regulation and you're basically just twisting it to do something that it was never intended to do. And that's not on. And we're taking you to court like you. This is not OK. And so that's where this whole this whole controversy, uh, this whole court case came from. That was the judgment that we were waiting for. The Illumina had said, you don't have the right. The commission said, Oh, yeah, we do. And, you know, there we were waiting for, to see what does the court say. Okay. 
Now, there's a lot at stake here, Natalie. There's a multi-billion dollar merger. There's world-leading technology all coming to blows with some of the most technical aspects of European merger law. What, what did the court say? So, yes, drum roll, <laughs> please. <laughs> the, the court said the European Commission wins 100%. I mean, as we say where I'm from, Louisiana, the, the commission won hook, line, and sinker. Um, what the court said was, okay, I read Article 22. We can all read. The words are there on the page, and it says that they can send any merger to the European Commission. If the, the national competition authorities have the right to send any merger that they think has an effect on trade, could significantly impact competition, they can send it to the European Commission. The words are there. Okay, maybe they weren't intended to be used this way, but the text is there and they have the legal basis. Because in the article, there's a specific word, isn't there, that then was referred to in the judgment, which I think is any. The, this idea of any merger, that's what this came down to. Is, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that the what the court did was they, they took Article 22, and it, you're right that, that that word, any, was pivotal. They said, look, you know, I don't know uh, what you, how you uh, interpret that phrase, uh, Illumina, but for us, any min, means any. And they also really did a deep dive in an analysis of Article 22 from many different perspectives. They looked at it in terms of just its literal words, but they also looked back to to the history of that provision. They looked at the context. They used it. They looked at how it had been used in the past, and they said, "You know what, Illumina, you don't have a case. It's all there, and the Commission is within its rights to take this deal." Wow, any is an expensive and powerful word here. Okay, so <laughs> what now? So now, uh, with the court's judgment, it's clear that the commission has the authority to look at the deal, and that's exactly what it's going to do. I have to say that in spite of the fact that uh, we had so much controversy about the procedure, this is also a case which is going to be pretty difficult substantively. I think that when you look at what is the, you know, the rationale, now we have to go back and think about what is the commission's problem with this deal? What are, the, what are their concerns? And the concern is that Illumina, which holds this powerful tool, the the key to this gene sequencing, would not like to license it to companies that were trying to um, develop a competitor to Grail's test. So sort of once Illumina has a dog in the race, then it wouldn't really be as forthcoming with licensing its technology to other companies um, so that they could perhaps develop competing tests. So that's the the theory of harm of the regulator is that Illumina might do that, that they might, you know, hamstring new competitors. But Illumina's uh, reaction is, wait a minute, I mean, why would we do that? It's our business to license our technology. That's what we do. Why would we do that? And in fact, there is nobody out there who's even developing such a similar test that is a potential competitor. So you're talking about a, you know, a sort of um, a potential that is not even realized. And lastly, they say, and look, okay, it may be true. We we think we're we're great. We think we have the mo- the best tests uh, out there. But there are others out there. So even if you know 
although we wouldn't do it, quad non, even if we decided to foreclose others from using our technology, they would have other alternatives. So I think that, you know, this is what we call a vertical deal where Illumina is supplying something to its customer and it's buying, it's buying one of its customers. Usually a vertical deal is not such a big problem because you're not eliminating a competitor. You're basically just uh, discussing the idea that maybe the buyer might have an incentive to foreclose in the future. Usually these deals are not so controversial. So I think that when you look at it as a matter of substance, it's also um, not an easy case for the commission to make. And even more, I mean, you know, we were so excited about this judgment, and I sort of thought that that was the last uh, exciting news that was going to happen before the summer, uh, the summer break. And just yesterday, a couple of extra things happened that really, you know, brought this thing up to a boil again. One thing is that Illumina, when it when it said, you know, you don't have the right to review this uh, this deal, they decided to go ahead and close their transaction. And that's a violation of what we call the standstill rule, which is that companies have to wait for the authority's permission before they can actually close their deal. Well, Illumina didn't wait. They just went ahead and closed the deal. This was back uh, last summer. And the um, commission immediately said, sorry, that's not on. This is a violation of our rules. And they put them on notice that they were investigating the violation of the standstill clause. Well, just yesterday, they were served with formal statement of objections saying that they had uh, violated the uh, standstill rule. And this risks, as uh, Margrethe Vester, the competition commissioner, said in the press release, she said they risk a hefty fine. And the hefty fine, it can be as much as 10% of turnover. So for Illumina, that could be, you know, in, like, let's say the hundreds of uh, millions of euro. So I think that uh, this is, was a, kind of an exciting step yesterday, the statement of objections on the gun jumping case. And even more, we thought, okay, that's all the excitement we're going to have this summer. No, one more thing still happened yesterday. That was that Illumina offered... Um, to modify its deal, to offer some remedies, to maybe make the commission more comfortable with it. And the clock restarted. The clock had been stopped while we waited for the court's judgment. And now we're back on the clock. So the the substantive review has, has picked up again where we left off. So now that the EU regulator can focus on the substance of the deal, how do you think the review is actually going to go? There are so many moving parts in this case. And the one good thing, uh, the one there's one thing I can say now with a little bit more certainty, now we have a deadline for the substantive decision. It's September 12th. So that is one thing which um, we can all fix our sights on now. On that date, the commission will make a decision whether or not the, uh, whether or not the merger can be uh, permitted, at least by that date. Generally, these kind of final decisions come a bit in advance of the final deadline. So, you know, basically in the at, towards the end of August, we're going to be looking for a decision from the commission on the substance of this deal. Can the merger proceed or not? That, like, like you said, it's not going to be the end because Illumina has appealed this uh, court uh, judgment uh, saying that the, the commission had jurisdiction. There may be uh, a fine for the gun jumping that would probably also be appealed. And so we're, you know, we're nowhere near the end of the controversy that this case is going to produce. 
This clearly isn't the last we're going to hear about the Illumina Grey deal, Natalie, and I know you'll be covering every twist and turn for our subscribers. But for now, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Natalie McNeilis is a Brussels-based MLEX reporter. She covers mergers and antitrust. And she was speaking to MLEX's Laurel Henning, who was very kind to step in to help out with the podcast this week. Thank you very much, Laurel. And Natalie's analysis of this EU court decision, written with her usual wit and erudition, is online and ready for you to enjoy. mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. If you click on the News Hub tab, you'll find plenty of MLEX content. There's also an archive for this humble podcast, if that's what you need to get through your weekend. And that's it for today. We'll return to your feed on Friday. I certainly hope that you can join us then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now.